Well, this morning we are beginning our six-week series through the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is an unusual prophetic book in that the prophet Habakkuk never addresses the people of Judah on behalf on the behalf of God, which is really what prophets primarily did. They were a, a, a person who would speak for God to his people, and yet Habakkuk never speaks to the people for God. Rather, what we have is a dialogue between the prophet and God. And as this video so helpfully laid out for us, these were hard times for the people of Judah. Their neighbors to the north, the 10 tribes of Israel, have been dragged off into exile by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrians, who were the world power at the time, are beginning to get defeated by a new power, the Babylonians. And, and so there's all these dangers from without, there's dangers from within. And what's really happening in this book, and, and this is where I think this will help us, this series, is that there is a theological crisis at the heart of this book. That Habakkuk's understanding of God is not lining up with his experience of God. And I think if we're honest, many of us have felt that way at times. Now, spoiler alert, by the end of the book, he's a changed person. He learns to wait on God. He learns to trust in God. And he learns to believe that God is working all things out for his good and for God's glory. But for much of this book and for much of his life, he lives with the tension that you and I live with. If God is good, why do my experiences in this life not seem to line up with that? And so that's the big question that we're going to wrestle with for the next six weeks. This morning, we're only in the first four verses of uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. And so I want us to go there together. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. And now verse 2 is his first prayer or his first complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I go, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. This is thousands of years ago, but doesn't it kind of feel like today? Anybody feel like, you know, you're surrounded by people who love to argue and fight? If not, get a social media account. You'll, you'll feel it. Verse 4, the law has become paralyzed. There is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice itself has become perverted. And what we have in the book of Habakkuk is three prayers from Habakkuk. And the first two are in the form of a complaint. Now, the Bible has some things. We're going to get to this. But the Bible has some warnings for us about being a complainer. There's definitely some ways in which we should not complain. And yet, this book is presented to us as two complaints by Habakkuk against God. And so this morning, what I want us to learn is, is how do we complain in a way that is not sinful, but actually garners us an audience with God? How should we complain? And the first thing is this, we have to complain about the right things. The problem is not that we complain, the problem is the things that we complain about. Complain about the right things. What, what bothers you? What, what makes you complain? Let's be honest. We all complain, right? Some of you complained this morning. You looked outside. You saw the snow. You're driving here. You're complaining about the plows. You're complaining about this, that. What do you complain about? We often tend to complain about things that are bad. How many of you complain about bad drivers? Anyone out there you complain about bad drivers while you're driving? Just four of you? Wow. Wow. We got a very holy group here. 
How many of you complain about bad service? You go out somewhere and you get bad customer service and it bothers you. All right, here's the real one. How many of you complain about bad calls in a game? Team that you're rooting for and you get a bad call. There we go. There's, there, there it comes. God bless the Bills today. May they triumph over the Dolphins and get that two seed that they deserve. Amen. That's a little prayer I wanted to just give. Um, <clears throat> what really bothers you? Bad drivers, bad service, bad calls in sports. Well, what's bothering Habakkuk here? And there's actually six words that describe what's bothering him. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, which is when the strong take advantage of the weak or the rich take advantage of the poor, strife, and conflict. These six words, violence, injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, strife, and conflict. And every single one of these terms, they don't just characterize Habakkuk's times, but they also characterize ours. When you think about what's happening in our world today with the war in Ukraine and the war in the Middle East, global jihad and terrorism, mass murder, genocides that have been going on so long, the news don't even cover them anymore. Slavery and human trafficking, there are more human slaves today than there have ever been in our history. Racial and economic oppression, political unrest and upheaval, spiritual deception, moral insanity, and social disintegration are describing some of the major news headlines of our times. And these are the things that Habakkuk is complaining about. And we have to be careful because we're so inundated with these things that it's easy, even as I listed them to you this morning, to kind of grow numb to these things. It'd be like, yeah, war, yeah, genocide, yeah, oppression, yeah, injustice, and have this attitude of, we're never going to fix this. It's always going to be this way. We maybe begin to accept them even as okay or, or, or unavoidable. Or we pretend that it's not really happening because it's not happening in our backyard. It's happening in the other side of the world. Or we turn them into political issues and we argue about them and we divide over them. We don't complain about them to God. Instead, we just kind of either ignore them and pretend they're not there. See, if we're honest, what you and I tend to complain about the most is when things don't go our way, right? When I am discomforted, when my convenience is, is, is put off, when my plans are interrupted, when my preferences are not considered. And I was thinking about some of the things that I complain about throughout the course of a week, and, I, and, and what occurred to me is that much of what we complain about actually at some point was a blessing in our life. So, for example, <clears throat> I find myself at times complaining about slow Wi-Fi. Anyone else ever get bothered by slow Wi-Fi? Do you know when I didn't com compare about slow Wi-Fi? 20 years ago. You know why? Because Wi-Fi didn't exist. I'm literally complaining about something that I didn't used to have. It's a blessing that I have now perverted and twisted into a complaint. Or complaining about Amazon shipping. What do you mean I have to wait four days for my new shoes to get here? It's supposed to be overnight or two days. Nobody 15 years ago complained about waiting four days for anything. We now have greater blessings, more things in our lives, and because we always need more, and because of the nature of our hearts, we turn them into complaints. We complain about healthcare and the things that are available, but so much of what's available in healthcare now would not have been available hundreds of years ago. The things that we can go to, the fact that we can go to ERs where we feel like we have to complain about how long we wait, and I get the frustration of that, yet, yet 100 years ago, no one has that option, right? 
So my, my point is, here's my, here's my point. We're, we spend a lot of our time complaining about things we didn't even have before. In other words, the more we get, the more we have to complain about. We take blessings from God and we turn them into complaints. My daughters love this YouTuber named Mr. Beast. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him or ever watched him, but Mr. Beast is a, uh, he's a young man and somehow he's become incredibly wealthy and most of his videos are him just giving stuff away to people. He's actually a very generous person he, and he gives away insane amounts of money to random people or cars or, or whatever. And this one episode that I watched the other day with, with my oldest daughter, he took two complete strangers and put them in a room and said, if you can stay in this room for 100 days together, I'll give you half a million dollars after the 100 days. I was like, where do I sign up? I can wait for 100 days in a room with this stranger. And there was nothing in the room other than a bed for each of them, canned food, small little kitchenette, and then a private bathroom that they would take turns using. And the way that the video went about was that every 10 days, he would come in with a temptation of sorts. He would say, you can pay $50,000 to have a personal chef make every meal for you for the next 90 days, and you won't have to eat the canned chicken. I would have cracked right there. I would have been like, I'm in. $50,000, personal chef, every meal, every day. And then so on and so forth, and he would offer them different things, like the ability to turn the light off in the room because it was a bright room and they had a hard time sleeping, or TV with DVDs or whatever. Day 70, he offers them everything he had previously offered them in one big offer. And they took it, of course. So now they go from having nothing to having big, comfortable beds, the ability to turn the lights off. They have a TV. They have, they have hundreds of DVDs, so many movies. They have board games. They have books to read. Uh, they have all these things now. And what really is interesting is that the last 30 days that they're in there together, they complain so much more than the first 70 days. And you know what all their complaints are about? The things they got. They're complaining about their movie selection. He's complaining that she wants to watch The Notebook again. She's complaining that he wants to play Monopoly again. They're complaining, and it's like, oh my goodness, everything that was given to you as a gift has now become a reason for you to complain. And here's what I think we have to pay attention to in our complaining, because the Bible warns us about complaining, that we often complain about the excess of things that were meant to be blessings for us. And Habakkuk is complaining here, but he's complaining not about the excesses of blessings. He's complaining about the effects of the curse, the ways in which the, the, ways in which the world is not the way that God created it to be. Habakkuk is not complaining about things not going his way. He's complaining about things not going God's way. He's bringing it to God's attention, not that God has forgotten, but because this is the work of an intercessor and a work of a prayer is to come to God and say, God, this is not the way it should be. Your kingdom is coming, and this does not reflect your kingdom. See, what we learn about Habakkuk in these first four verses, because his complaints are about violence, injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, strife, and conflict, is that he's not selfish, but he has the heart of God. And he's bringing the very heart of God to God in prayer, and that's called lamenting. We come to God and we see things that are not right. We see children that are misused uh, in our country. We see um, the wars that are happening around the world. We see economic and social oppression. And instead of just sort of internalizing them or sharing them with each other or posting about them, we learn to bring them to God in the form of a complaint, which the Bible calls a lament. See, he has the heart of God, and we must as well. What do we complain about? We must complain about the right things. 
Habakkuk is bothered by the sinful actions of humankind, but also he's bothered by what he perceives to be the lack of action by God. He's having a theological existential crisis where what he believes about God and what he's experiencing are not lining up, and so he brings his complaint. So the first thing, when we complain, we have to complain about the right things. Secondly, complain in the right direction, the right direction. <clears throat> when I go out to eat with friends or with family, for the most part, I never send my food back. If it comes out and it's not perfect, it's okay. Usually I just eat it, I endure it. There's one exception, and the one exception is an overcooked steak, because if I wanted an overcooked steak, I would have just got chicken, right? So I have to send back overcooked steak, and so if I cut into my steak and it's not medium rare or whatever I ask, I will often send it back. And my complaint, and of course I try to be polite about it, my complaint starts with the waiter or the waitress. They'll come to the table and I'll say, I'm sorry, but I ordered this rare, and I, is this, and I'll show them, and they'll go, oh, usually they'll go, oh, I'm so sorry, that's over. And then, and then so my complaint starts with the waiter or the waitress, and they take it away. Then sometimes a manager will come by. I'm so sorry that your steak was overcooked. Da, da, da. You know, so now my complaint goes to the manager. But here's the thing. If the complaint doesn't make it to the chef, what's the point? Because ultimately it's the chef that has to do something about the situation. And when Habakkuk complains to God, he's going to the only person, so to speak, who can actually do something about it. And so often, we don't bring our complaints to God, do we? What do we where do we turn with our complaints? There's, there's, I think there's three options for us. And the first thing is, often we bring our complaints to each other. I'm going to call this horizontal. So instead of bringing our complaints to God in prayer, we bring our complaints to each other. And think about the majority of your conversations with your family and your friend, and friends, hopefully you have more than one friend, family and friends. Uh, think about those conversations. How much of that would be categorized as you complaining? about life, about something that's going on. Pay attention to the content of our conversations. We, we, are we just sharing complaints with each other? Is it just sort of a misery loves company thing? You know, C.S. Lewis, when he talks about friendship, he says that the beginning of every friendship is, is realizing that you have something unique in common with that individual. But what I've also learned about friendship is a lot of times the things that hold friends together is not things that they both like, but things that they both don't like, <laughs> or people that they both don't like, or types of people that they both don't like. And the majority of their friendship and their conversation is not life-giving at all. Instead, they get together and they just commiserate, and they complain, and they talk badly about others, and they gossip, and they cut other people down. That's taking our complaints and trying to go horizontal. And to that, Paul in Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining. Live your life free of this sort of selfish, myopic, unhealthy complaining. If we're complaining, it's usually rooted in comparison. Somebody has something that we think we deserve, or somebody has something that we think they don't deserve, and it turns us into a complainer. So we turn horizontal. Others of us just kind of internalize it. We turn internal. We obsess about things that bother us. It turns into worry. It turns into anxiety. It turns into anger, and it begins to rot us from the inside out. We spend our life, our private moments, rehearsing, remembering, and rehearsing, and reliving slights and wrongs and injustices towards ourselves. And instead of giving them to God, we just hold them within. Now, if you bring your complaints horizontally or if you hold them internally, the problem is, is the issue 
is ultimately gospel forgetfulness, that you're forgetting something about the gospel. Because if you're going to other people with your complaints, you're forgetting that they can't save you. They're not the chef who overcooked your steak. They're the waiter who brought it to you, so to speak. They can't fix your issues. Your issues are deeper within your heart. Your unhappiness is not just rooted in your circumstances. Your unhappiness is rooted in your character. It's rooted in what you believe to be true about God and true about yourself. And so me running to you or you running to me, it's, it, there's no value in that. We cannot save each other. We cannot be saved through each other. We have to bring our complaints to God. But also if we internalize everything, then we're forgetting that because the gospel is true, we now have a safe place, a safe space to go with our complaints, that we can come before God and be honest with our prayers. So where do we go? Instead of horizontal or internal, we turn vertical. We go to God in prayer and lament. And there's something in this verse that indicates that when we read Habakkuk's words, it's not the first time he's brought his complaint and it's not the last time that he brought his complaint. There's something in the Hebrew verb that indicates that this is something that he brought over and over and over. And this speaks to the necessity of persistence in coming to God. That we don't just sort of go to God once with our complaints and say, he heard me and he knows. But we go regularly with them because it is a way of indicating that all of our help and all of our hope comes not from each other and not from inside of me, but from God. And so we persist in prayer as Habakkuk persists in prayer, going to him over and over. And it's okay to pray things to God, to God like this. God, how long? How long till my family member fill in the blank? How long until I get free from how long until this situation, anything that is happening in our lives in this world that reflect the curse, it's okay to lament in prayer because lamenting in prayer is better than lamenting alone. Many people feel like prayer is the last place for honesty. I, the, the, our teenagers on Wednesday nights are going through a, a um, series right now on prayer called Deeply Rooted. And last week, I got to hear a little bit of Bethany's teaching. And one of the things that I heard her talking about is that sometimes teenagers, but also adults, think, if I'm going to pray, i got to get my act together to pray, right? i got to get the holiest version of myself, kind of work myself up into some sort of a prayer attitude, <laughs> some sort of a prayer position, and somehow impress God with my words and with my piety, and that I'm asking for the right things. And you know what that sort of mindset leads to? First off, it leads to dishonest praying, but eventually it will lead to no praying at all because you'll get exhausted trying to be that person to somehow impress God. The scriptures make it clear that you and I do not approach God based on our righteousness. We approach God based on the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it actually means to pray in Jesus' name. That's why we say that at the end of our prayers, not just because everyone else says it. When we say, in Jesus' name I pray, what we're saying is, under the righteousness of Jesus, in his standing, in his perfection, under his name, I come to the Father. And because I'm under the righteousness of Christ, I can be remarkably honest in my prayer. See, the need for honesty, on, prayer is not a place for dishonesty. It's a prayer for absolute, total honesty where you can come to God and you can vent and you can yell and you can ask questions like, how long? How long? And some of you, I think it's possible your prayer life is stunted because you don't know that that's okay, that you can do that. You don't have to be impressive. You have to be honest. 
That's all it really takes. C.S. Lewis said this, prayer is saying, may it be the real I who speaks and may it be the real thou that I speak to. This is the prayer that precedes all prayers. The prayer that goes before all prayers is may it really be me coming to you, God. All of my mess, all of my flaws, all of my shortcomings, I come to you in prayer complaining to you because you're the right one to complain to. So we complain about the right things. We complain in the right direction. And lastly, I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. We complain with, I'm going to call this the right understanding, the right understanding. There's something really important in these four verses that would be easy to miss, and it's the name that Habakkuk uses for God. So when Habakkuk comes to God, what he says to him in verse 2 is, how long... Oh, Lord. And that name for God, Lord, is the word Yahweh. And that name for God is the covenant name of God. It's the covenant is the promise that God has made with his people. And so when, when Habakkuk comes to God and uses the covenant name, what he's appealing to is relationship. God, you formed a covenant with our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you've confirmed your covenant over the times through this, the raising up of prophets and priests and kings. And I know that even though the world doesn't make sense right now, you're still a covenant-keeping God. And so Habakkuk is approaching God, not according to the circumstances that he sees, but according to the covenant that God has made. And that's one thing that you and I have to learn in prayer is that we approach God not because of the circumstances that we have. We shouldn't just go to prayer because the circumstances drive us there, right? Yes, I know we tend to pray more when things are bad and we're up against something and there's a medical prognosis or diagnosis. I understand that. But we can't just pray because of circumstances. We pray because of the covenants. And God acts according to his character, which is revealed in his covenant, and he does not act according to the circumstances. And that's why sometimes what God is doing and what we want him to do don't line up. Because God is not captive to our circumstances, but he is faithful to his covenant. And those are two very different things. And in his covenant, we see his character. And so we must learn to see our complaints in the light. We must have the right understanding that we have a covenant-keeping God. So here's the right understanding to have. In God, and because of Jesus, we have blessings that eclipse anything we will ever have to complain about. And even though there are legitimate things to complain about in this world, because God is a covenant-keeping God, we know that the promise that he made that someday he will make all things right and all things new, he will keep his promise. And so even though we live in the in-between, and we take all of that tension and all of that struggle, and we make it a lament, and we bring it to God, yet we trust him with the right understanding that he's making all things right. He's a covenant-keeping God. And what did it cost God to keep his covenant? In closing, Genesis chapter 15, God is renewing his covenant with Abraham. It's a very interesting story, and it's going to bring us to the communion table this morning. Whenever there was a covenant made between a Lord and a servant, and that was the nature of this covenant, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. This was a Lord-servant covenant. At this time in the ancient Near Eastern world, any time that there was a covenant ceremony, it involved the sacrifice of animals. 
but not just the sacrifice of animals. They would cut the animals in half. And so God told Abraham, go get a goat, go get a heifer, go get whatever, right? And cut the animals in half. And then they would pull the animals apart. So one half of the animals over here, the other half of the animals over here. And then the most important part of any covenant ceremony is that at that point, the servant would walk through the pieces of the animal. And the symbolism was this, that if I break the covenant, that what happened to these animals will happen to me. That's how serious a covenant was. So Abraham cuts the animals in half and he pulls them apart. But before Abraham, the servant, can walk through the pieces, it says that God put Abraham in a deep sleep. This is only the second time he put someone in a deep sleep. The first time it was Adam, and now it's Abraham. First time he was forming people, this time he's forming his people. And he puts Abraham in that deep sleep. You know why? Because if Abraham, if Abraham had walked between those pieces, that would have been terrible news for you. And that would have been terrible news for me. Because that would have meant that when we don't hold up our end of the covenant, and we so often don't, what happened to those animals should be happening to us. We should be torn pieces to pieces. Instead, what happens is God shows up like a burning torch. And the burning torch passes between the pieces. And in that moment, the covenant-keeping God is saying this to his people. If you break the covenant, then what happened to these animals will happen to me. And thousands of years later, that's exactly what happened at the cross. We broke the covenant. And the only way for the covenant to be honored was for the God who promised in Genesis 15 that I'll pay the price for all your sin and all your wickedness to actually come to earth as a person, Jesus Christ, to be torn apart like those animals were, to bleed and to suffer and to die so that you and I might have a covenant with the God, that we might have a relationship with God. And so we keep that in mind that when we complain and when we suffer and when we struggle and we bring those complaints to God, we remind ourselves, God, it cost you everything to keep the covenant. It cost you everything to have us. And what it does is it doesn't rid us of every complaint in our hearts, but it begins to reprioritize the things that we love, begins to change our hearts so that we complain less about selfish things. We, we complain to God about his stuff, but we also always have gratitude underneath all of that because he's a covenant-keeping God. Let's pray together.